Welcome to episode three in season three of the Wimp Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Draper. My guest today is a uh, Ethiopian national who's living in the Lansing area. His name is Ayana Fayisa. Uh, we are going to be talking about uh, the conflict in Ethiopia right now. National headlines are obviously focused on the Israel and Palestine conflict. Uh, prior to that, we had the Ukraine-Russia conflict. But what is kind of going under the radar is some major conflict happening in the country of Ethiopia uh, in Eastern Africa. So I'm very excited to have uh, Ayana join us today. Ayana, hello. Hello, Jesse. Thank you for having me. Uh, so what I want to do, I think uh, most of my listeners, and by most, I mean probably all, but maybe a handful, um, aren't really even aware of what's going on, right? So um, in a previous conversation with you, I had mentioned that my, you know, uh, as, a, as an American, white male American growing up in Midwest America, my uh, previous understanding of Ethiopia was very limited to um, pop culture Type references. So in the 1980s, there was a, uh, you know, a, a tremendous famine uh, uh, in which uh, I, I believe some bands got together to raise money to support the country. Right. So it's very much a, my understanding before I met you and before I had uh, moved into a region where there's now Ethiopian restaurants and things like that was was extremely limited to this country in Africa that was, you know, um, struggling largely due to environmental reasons, right? Famine and those kinds of things. In in our conversation, you've mentioned that that's a, a thing that's happened more than once, um, the famine in Ethiopia, but there's, there's a whole lot more to this country. Um, and as I was researching and preparing for our conversation, just tremendous um, wealth of information uh, about this place. And so um, I think what would be helpful for, is for us to kind of blow it up a little bit in terms of historical context. And what I'll do, if you're cool with it, Ayana, is yeah. is kind of lead with my understanding of a broad view of of Ethiopia's history just in the last, you know, modern era, really. Um, and then, you know, you can kind of plug in the gaps and and fill me, fill in the holes where where I'm off. But so um, you know, so there was a uh, um a monarchic era, uh, you know, led by uh, Melanic II, um, which was then supplanted by the Derg era in the 1970s, which was a uh, Marxist-Leninist uh, kind of authoritarian re regime, right? And I believe both of those periods of leadership, you know, in the in the history were um, led by um, uh, Amhara ethnic. Uh, group. So Ethiopia is a, a huge collection of different ethnicities, different regions, right? And so I'll be talking about a few of the major ones from my understanding in the more politically dominated context. But of course, there are other regions that that you're welcome to bring in, and I hope you do. But so the leadership of the of the nation, when it becomes a, like a national right identity, uh, starts with that. Um, and then there was, uh, following the, the end of the Derg era, there was the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, which was created, uh, led by Mela Zenawi, um, uh, who was, I believe, part of the Tigray uh, Liberation Army, 
or Tigray People Lib People's Liberation? Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF. Front, thank you. Um, which, from my understanding, was a bit of an authoritarian regime. Um, and then more recently, uh, and in 2018, I believe, the Prosperity Party, which was a multi-ethnic coalition led by Abiy Ahmed, uh, took over. And Ahmed being of the Oromo uh, ethnic uh, group. Uh, and so for my listeners, you don't have a map of Ethiopia, but uh, Oromo is a, a, a large region that seems to be kind of in the center, uh, slightly west part of the country. The Amhara region seems to be uh, just north of that. And then that Tigray element is right at the northern tip of the country, uh, bordering on um, Eritrea, which is in the northeast and borders the Red Sea which if you are paying attention to the news and you think of hostilities, that's probably something that you're more familiar with is the hostilities formerly between Ethiopia and Entria, which um, Ahmed received a, a Nobel Peace Prize for uh, negotiating a rapprochement or, or peace, at least a tentative peace agreement with them. Although in recent news, it looks like he is uh, really interested in establishing port access in the Red Sea, which is going guy has to go through uh you know uh eritrea so that complicates things um so that's the general gist of my understanding of how national ethiopia right and its various different regimes and different types of leadership uh organizations has developed over time is that accurate or how do we understand that, this that well, that is very uh, detailed understanding of Ethiopia, and, and, and you know I've lived in the in the U.S. for uh, you know almost fourteen, fifteen years now, and I've had conversations with a lot of people, and your uh, understanding of it is uh, one of the like really detailed ones. As as it pertains to the monarchy, the monarchical uh, government. Uh, so the word Ethiopia is used interchangeably for a very uh, diverse, varying uh, geographical uh, positioning. So the Ethiopian map we have today is not the same Ethiopian map as we had uh, 30 something years ago, around 1991. Uh, and it's not the same as the one we had in 1884. Uh, the country used to be called Abyssinia. Also, so the, the monarchy has, uh, they had dynasties and Ethiopia is one of the earliest countries to actually uh, have uh, received Christianity and Islam, both religions, uh, specifically uh, Christianity as, as a state religion. Uh, and Islam was, uh, as it's written in the, uh, in the, in the hadith of the Muslims, is one of the first uh, pilgrimage was to Ethiopia during the persecution of the Prophet Muhammad and they had them as guests but not as actually a national religion. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the Coptic Church uh, was, and before that uh, Judaism also had its home in Ethiopia historically. So there was this mosaic uh, dynasty and Solomonic dynasty which by some uh, type of mythology, I believe some people say it's accurate historically, and I don't want to delve into that deep argument of uh, how many angels stand at the tip of a needle. Uh, but 
the 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 idea the the historicity is traced back to Solomon, king of uh, Israel, and they say uh, Queen Sheba <clears throat> went there with and had uh, Menelik the first uh, a few hundred years before that, uh, many hundred years, and they trace back this genealogical relationship with biblical figures. And they they call it Siuma Xavier, meaning the one appointed from God. So they actually associate their power coming from a deity, uh, and and in that sense, the people should be governed by this uh, monarch, not because you know uh, he's a you know meritoriously the best leader or anything, but because he is appointed from God. And people have tapped into those <clears throat> two. Uh, dynasties. The Solomonic dynasty is by far the longest dynasty that has stayed. Uh, no, no, and 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 the Mosaic dynasty, which is believed to have been mainly the from the Tigrayan region, is a short-lived. The whole northern Ethiopia, as we know it right now, was where these dynasties and these kingdoms were. In 1884, after the German uh, scramble for Africa meeting, where the European leaders uh, came together and decided how to divide uh, Africa and uh, colonize it. Around that time in 1884-85, Menelik himself said, well, since they are scrambling for Africa, I'm going to go down and establish this territorial uh, width to this, uh, to this geography and call it Ethiopia. And he went down to the southern people where the Oromo and other ethnicities in Ethiopia today it is believed to be of somewhere around 86 uh, ethnicities. Uh, the three you have called are the most predominant politically, the Oromo, the Tigray, and the Amhara. Uh, but there are so many of them, and most of them uh, reside in the southern area, and the most populous and the, with the highest geographical uh, coverage is the Oromo. So the Oromo was incorporated into this geographical uh, nation called Ethiopia during that time, which most uh, Oromo nationalists believe is a certain type of colonization. We know the Blue Water Doctrines, if you know of it, I believe. The Blue Water Doctrines actually, after colonization is over, claim that for uh, something to be considered colony, it has to have had some kind of travel overseas. The, so maritime movement. But since this was a neighboring people uh, going and expanding its uh, national boundaries, it was never considered to be a colonization. But it has all the components of a colony, right? So, well, I, you look like you have a question. I know our <laughs> listeners, our listeners probably cannot see you. I'm looking at you, and I'm I'm, I'm seeing. If you have, please, I can talk miles and miles. You have to cut yeah. me off and say. Uh, so walk back this one. Just make sure. I, yeah, I no, just just adding to uh, the bit there where you talked about moving into the southern uh, areas and expanding. Um, so there, and and I I like the idea that you brought up that because it's not cross maritime that it's not colonialism by definition. But you know, I teach an American cultural studies course, and we just had a discussion about uh, American expansion. And, and what that looks like. And I, I said to my class, I said, isn't it interesting that we don't consider the spread of the 13 colonies westward across North America 
and the displacement and replacement of all the indigenous people there as a colonial endeavor, uh, right? Even though it's 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 the same goals. It's it's expanding territorial access, expanding access to resources, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Nor do we consider uh, the taking of human resources from Africa for for economic gain, a part of a, a broader colonial project, which is interesting because it's, you know, the ends are are very similar. And so I yeah, and I see to that, that note, to that note, I've actually read uh, something uh, when I was preparing for for you know an Ethiopian conversations that I have uh, on other platform. I read uh, a person who did uh, cannot come up with the name right now, but a PhD thesis. Uh, dissertation uh, that actually focuses on uh, native uh, people and this blue water doctrine uh, uh, and and how that contradicts and how he is against the blue water doctrine for the most part you know I'm butchering his thesis but that is like you know by essence what he was trying to prove so uh, yeah that, that is a, a great uh, parallel to be drawn there um, yeah so I'm sorry, I, I think I cut you off. No, I was only going to, I was almost finished. I was only going to add that um, in my understanding, right, there was the sending of um, Amhara uh, people and or like um, dignitaries into that South, kind of in a settler colonial type of program where we're going to send some uh, folks from the the you know the dominant Amhara ethnic group into these southern regions as part of that, bringing it into the broader, uh, you know, national growth of of Ethiopia. Uh, as it yeah. started, is that accurate? And 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 it's it's the, the similarities are like bewildering when you look at what uh, Menelik's endeavor. Uh, into the south uh, looks like, and today it's considered by some as a derogatory a word called neftanya, which means, which literally means one that carries guns. Um, at, at that time, guns were something of like uh, really uh, foreign for the imagination of most people in the south. But due to uh, that long monarchy uh, system that they had in the relationship with the British and other European countries, they had uh, guns. Uh, and what they did was they came and uh, selected a few people who were lords and leaders in, the, in those communities. And if they surrender and work with them uh, to tax and govern the area, they gave them those guns. Uh, and some of them, their people moved and migrated and stayed there with their guns to make sure there is no rebellion and that the territorial boundary is respected. So uh, th that name stuck with them, uh, meaning they are, of course, the, the, the whole land belongs to the king, as most uh, monarchies do, but his family ruled under him and the people who held guns for him and make sure that taxes are collected were also beneficials. Okay. Um, yeah. So that expanded. So for, for from that monarchical system, well, of course, there is Haile Selassie, where the last uh, king of the monarchy, uh, who uh, ruled until 16, 1966, uh, until he was uh, thrown uh, away by by the, the you know Derg regime, which is a military 
coup d'etat, the military uh, uh, rebellion that actually took control of the country. Uh, the colonel, the Mangustu Haile Mariam, who ruled for 17 years, uh, came to power and the, one of the biggest movements that brought him to power was the student movement of land for the tailor. So the land shall belong to the people who tell it, to, for the farmers. Mm. That was one of the biggest shifts in the dynamic of the Ethiopian politics uh, as we know it today. So that shift brought Dirk, but Dirk had a relationship <clears throat> that, because you know the European and, and mostly the US had a good relationship with, uh, with Haile Selassie uh, due to the uh, placement of a Ganyo Shalika uh, military base, uh, surveillance base uh, in Eritrea. Eritrea was annexed back uh, during Menelik. So Menelik was the king who fought the Adwa war. When the Italians came after the scramble, they tried to, uh, Ethiopia was supposed to be colonized by Eritrea and they fought. He mobilized all those people from the new lands he conquered and fought against the Eritreans. Mm -hmm. uh, so Menelik pushed back and actually won the Italians on Adwa front. Then they came back during Haile Selassie. Haile Selassie had to flee and go to England. And he took refuge there for five years. He came back. The war never started. The resistance never stopped. Uh, so Haile Selassie came, uh, but he had a good relationship with, with the Western world, as did his predecessors. Uh, but when Dirk came, Dirk completely shifted. And he, the relationship between uh, Ethiopia and the U.S. mostly at that time was soured because he had a socialist uh, ideology and has a relationship with the Soviet Union and Cuba. So if he built on that and he was a dictator like no other but a dictator by system. He had a party system and very brutal. Uh, some people claim that uh, somewhere around 2 million people, uh, most of them young people, were, were killed. And these were not like hiding uh, the killings or anything. They, this used to be announced in the radio. Uh, during in the morning, there was a song, a uh, revolutionary song, and they would say so and so, so and so, where terror, Red Terror was the <clears throat> logo, and Red Terror uh, was that took a lot of people. And people were charged for bullets uh, um, to take their loved ones. They were charged for the bullets that killed their loved ones. It was a horrendous period. <clears throat> but the fight uh, started against this regime, um, the Eritrean rebels, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the, the first one started. Uh, OLF, uh, Romo People's Liberation Front, uh, had its own fight. And they uh, pushed against this military force. There was a lot of help from outside, as it is believed, mostly from you know uh, Europeans and um, Americans for the most part, because of its you know the Dirk's relationship with the Soviet Union. But once they toppled the Dirk government, there was a gap that was created uh, between the forces that were you know united and the OLF was pushed out. And they had to go back and remain rebellion uh, against the TPLF. Uh, the TPLF started the country's dynamic anew, meaning it recognizes, at least on paper, 
it recognizes and the constitution recognizes uh, these ethnicities as independent uh, nations, nationalities, and people, and they have a coalition, a federalist country. So it's federalized Ethiopia. So it got its name and its constitution and its government system, parliamentarian government system with a prime minister, and all of that was established in 1991 when, when the TPRDF. TPLF-EPRDF came. TPLF-EPRDF is the name given to it because of TPLF being predominant with its military power when they came to power and that it sustained that military uh, power into the political uh, realm too. And politically, it was very dominant and other parties were subservient to the TPLF people, which are, you know, the Tigray people, somewhere around 6% of the nation's population. Um, similar land uh, land uh, position too. So and that's what you know has gone for twenty seven years uh, until two thousand eighteen, when they had a change that came from within, uh, supported by the young people's movement, the Kero and Karayas. They call them mostly the people around Addis Ababa, the capital, which are Oromo. Uh, you know, at this of our in the in the Oromo, they're called Fimfine, the city. Fimfine is at the heart of Oromia, and the people were resisting the growth and expansion of the city that's taking land away from the farmers, and people were being dispositioned and being hurt. So that revolution, that movement, supported from internal uh, uh, internal change uh, against the TPLF pushed the TPLF off the power. And uh, one thing I skipped was Eritrea got its referendum two years after the Derg regime fell uh, and it became its own country. But subsequently, very uh, short time, started a war with Ethiopia, which took uh, somewhere around 200,000 people's life. Um, that war never stopped. I mean, it was uh, no war, no peace situation very contemptuous uh, and it wasn't to be sold. Uh, there was an agreement in Algiers uh, to give a certain land to uh, Eritrea and bring some peace. The Ethiopian government led by TPLF signed that deal, came back and walked it back and didn't give it. So it was a very tense situation between Ethiopia and Eritrea for uh, almost 20 years. That situation was resolved. Although, didn't, wasn't there uh, also, while that was peace was being worked out, wasn't there uh, in the interim, uh, while before the you know the pen went to paper, the area got expanded uh, in Eritrea, or was that a different period that I'm thinking about? I, I remember hearing yeah, at so, one point there was yeah. So this uh, area that's called Badmishraro uh, in in the boundaries between Tigray and uh, Eritrea, the border of Ethiopia and Eritrea. Uh, was disputed and there were movements and of military and that land was expanding and as the deal was being struck and they were about to sign there was actually military movement on the on the ground which is outside you know against the the norm or it's, it's in it's in against uh, the ethical way of doing doing negotiation even more uh, unacceptable was for the you know international community was that they signed a deal, they agreed upon it, and they came and said, you know, uh, lick your nose, we're not going to give anything to you. So that brought um, 
more intensity to the to the fear of at any moment you know a single shot of bullet could reignite a deadly war and abi came in <clears throat> and abi ahmed actually traveled to eritrea that was unprecedented unprecedented he just traveled there to talk to isaias aforke and he said i'm going to agree i'm going to give anything decided on algiers and he's pretty much uh, at some point i remember um uh, Uh, everywhere I go, I can. I'm going to be an acting. I'm going to be acting as if I am the ambassador of Eritrea, is what he said. So that was a very warm and fuzzy uh, time. You know, people were drunk, as one of my uh, friends uh, says it. People were drunk with surprises, good surprises, and happy news, uh, because political prisoners were being freed left and right. and wars were being ended with a single flight and call uh, it was just kumbaya and you know the the western uh, nations um, and i don't know if you read it there is this paper called who lost ethiopia uh, written uh, uh, so it, it they they discuss how after the war in tigray broke they're saying how did we 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 uh, overlook some of the things that we normally use to vet this uh, potential uh, allies or, or assets in other foreign nations and leaders uh, when it comes to abi i think they got a sip of the kool-aid that the ethiopian people had um, so it was overwhelmingly a happy time and he got his nobel peace prize uh, award uh, due to it too is it it's, so on the outside looking in for me and looking over this in the timeline of things it's interesting to me that um you know he creates this this piece with uh Eritrea and then not two years later right there's the war in Tigray and Eritrea right next door neighbors becomes uh, an ally in that fight right so the cynical side of me wonders if that was a long-term play of like you know make them my friends so that they can be a part of this effort to to you know go into tigray maybe not maybe that's just yeah that that speculation is not a bad one you know it it shows how politically sharp you are but the thing is which one came first is it the chicken or the egg some people mm-hmm. speculate is it the fact that he went and made peace with the eritrea that soured his relationship with uh, the tplf led eritrean uh, state mm-hmm. uh, government which is entrenched with you know military apparatus and they were entirely the the you know the security uh is covered by people from Tigray and all of that uh, they actually felt threatened because he went and created that peace and it actually exacerbated the situation or you know created it and some people say no he was being a chess player and making moves Uh, had a time that will help him later in creating and you know in 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 uh, fixing this this problem with Eritrea so either one uh, uh, can be complementing each other in in that speculation but it it at the end it's going to be you know just political uh, guessing game unless they come out here and admit it themselves so but what happened is the relationship he had with the of course you know there is there is an issue with the tplf that before the war began uh, you know before the fighting began there was the war 
in the in the offices and in the you know he retired a few major uh, military and security leaders uh, without announcement uh, early retirement and there was some moving things around um, and they went the ambassadors all those politicians and generals went back to Tigray and uh, they started uh, you know being careful and preparing because they felt like well from their own words they felt like Ari is coming for them uh, one day or not one way or another uh, so that gap widened at least with his newly uh, created relationship very very uh, loving relationship and they used to call each other by nicknames almost sometimes uh, with the Eritrean president that I, I think has made things a little uh, a little uh, difficult for the relationship with Tigray, uh, which led to one of the saddest uh, uh, histories, uh, one one of the sad, saddest incidents in our history in, the, in that country's history, which is uh, 2020 until 2022, where we, uh, some by some estimates, have lost somewhere around a million people. Uh, for for that war, and I mean the international community. There was a hearing, a house hearing, on Ethiopia uh, a week ago, and uh, one, I believe, uh, House representative uh, or senator, I forgot his name. I was looking for my note actually as you were starting. He he was really baffled by the fact that you know the number of people that were killed or affected in any of the wars either Ukraine or in in the in Gaza or in Israel cannot even be you know compared to the amount of atrocities the amount of uh, human lives lost uh, in, in that area and attention differs because you know political interests differ too I understand but uh, yeah that happened and I'm glad you know at least there is a uh, signed ceasefire and, uh, and a new government transitional government in Tigray and things seem more manageable. They are, you know, the aid organizations are able to go and assist people who are in dire need of uh, assistance, like you know, food and everything. So, well, that's why uh, you know, I, I I really wanted to bring this up, and I thought this was interesting. Uh, not interesting is not the right word, but you know, just that notion that th- there's so much more death happening in this conflict than these other two that we've been tracking so closely in the United States. Um, and uh, it seemed not right to me not to, to, to bring this to uh, a wider audience and, and bring this up. Let's just take a, a short break uh, and then we'll shift gears a little bit when we come back. Ethiopia is um Coptic uh, Orthodox Christian by majority, correct? Um, yeah, well, it's not a, a clear majority now. It used to be, okay. Uh, um, you know, but right now, at least, uh, I don't know, the, I don't have the uh, statistics, but the, one of the most populous, populous religions, one of the, you know, biggest numbers is Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is the Coptic. Okay. Uh, the number of uh, Protestants has increased in my lifetime. Uh, we used to know each other's numbers, uh, each other's names uh, by last name, <laughs> but right now it has one of the most expanded uh, religion in Ethiopia is Protestant. 
So, but it's still largely the, under the larger banner of, of Christianity, right? It is the larger banner of Christianity. It differs from region to region. Uh, for example, when you go to like Tigray, it's pretty much 96% uh, Coptic Orthodox, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in, in Amhara, it's overwhelming uh, number of people are uh, Ethiopian Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox Church. Uh, followers, but when you come to the southern people, you will see a Protestant uh, and Muslims and or the Oromo people have a majority of uh, the Oromos uh, are Muslims. So there is, it varies, but when you accumulate it and and do the numbers, there is that balance between you know uh, Muslims and Protestants versus Coptic is. Somewhere around, it's uh, you know the same number, uh, but in the older days, it used to be different. What strikes me is interesting is that in my reading, and this is why I wanted to bring it to you. In my reading, I I didn't really see the root of these conflicts as being religious, like they are in so many other places. Like you know, um, the at least in terms of the media coverage in the United States, the you know you have uh, constantly have Christianity versus Islam when we're dealing with conflict in the Middle East. Uh, and so I was struck by how much conflict this this country in East Africa has had uh, in Ethiopia. And it, But it doesn't seem to me that it's driven in the same kind of religious confrontations as in other parts of the world. Is that accurate? Or, you know, what are the kinds yeah. of things that are driving the conflicts that seem persistent in Ethiopia? Yeah, the, the religion has not been a direct uh, cause uh, that ha- there hasn't been that direct causality between religion and uh, conflicts and wars since the 16th century uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, you know the Ottomans, the Turks, the, the right. that expansion and all of that, which has significant effect on the actual demography and what we have right now. But in reality, in Ethiopia, uh, there has been a huge uh, difference from where I, what I have seen in a lot of places where the you know a mosque and a church would be side by side and people would you know go to the mosque and to the church and you wouldn't have one fist fight based on a religion for you know decades not you know centuries because um, those have not been like a factor um, um, the the conflicts we have, right now could have uh, could use and have used at times religion as a tool to uh, mobilize and to actually uh, make people feel like you know this thing is led by by a certain religion and in reality the monarchy and uh, Ethiopian empire when it was established in its current uh, geography excluding uh, Eritrea had this religious flavor in it, but it wasn't entirely religious. It was uh, kind of sandwiched in that cultural bracket uh, of, you know, they, they would baptize leaders and, and people who they appoint as administrators, and they expect them to learn the language uh, of the Amhara, which is Amharic, and they would expect them, you know, they would marry them to their kids or cousins 
and he will get baptized and he will get a new Christian name and that, things of that sort. Uh, but so it did, the church and, and, and the government were uh, hand and glove in the whole process uh, of, uh, you know, controlling that state and running it and writing its history. What most Western writers uh, that I have noticed when they evaluate or write uh, the Ethiopian history uh, do not underline uh, is how how you know how uh, believable is a document when the ecclesiastic community that produced it has a one third payment of taxes collected to the church. The church used to collect one third of whatever is produced, one third to the nation one-third to the church and one-third to the farmer. That was how it was distributed for a long time. So a church that feeds from the king's table could have some historical documents uh, that are written that could be biased, I would suspect, right? So, uh, but people who came and studied, uh, especially uh, in, in long in times ago, like hundreds of years ago, wrote documents that are directly uh, adopted from the ecclesiastic documents with a trust that this is a religious organization, why would they lie, right? This is a religious place, you know, their supervisor is God or something like that, but their supervisor apparently is the king uh, who shares one third of the incomes with them. So I think those things should be evaluated, which is one of the greatest resentments historians from the South have because we didn't have the relationship with the government. We, you know, they were not really implanted in this entire state uh, thing. They didn't have the way to grow their language, they didn't read or write. Uh, education was very low. Um, so <clears throat> they didn't have the opportunity to write their history and their own stories in the way they would have it. So they were portrayed on those readings uh, on those historical documents as being less than uh, or not belonging. And those were reflected by Western writers every now and then. And that, that's something that's being corrected within the last, you know, since the 21st uh, century has dawned pretty much. So if it's not primarily religion that's driving the conflict, and what I was struck by um, is it has to be, and we're going to, slowly start here transitioning into what you're doing now with your own um, efforts. Uh, but it has to be heartbreaking, I imagine, uh, as an Ethiopian, that there's just been constant conflict. Like it, to me, I look at that and it's like the, the American Civil War, but for a century, you know, of just constant flight. And it's just different different groups choosing different groups. And there's some central players, right? I mean, I think... Um, different aspects of, of as we've talked about, the uh, Hamara, uh, uh, Oromo, and Tigray as kind of central players in this. But I mean, there's other uh, aspects into it, right? You can go down into, into Somali and in the other areas in the South. But there's so much ethnic conflict. Why is it so hard to kind of realize that kind of Pan-Africanist spirit that I believe was at the heart of some of the original kind of gathering of the regions in Ethiopia under a singular, right? Now, granted, it was under a monarchy, but under a singular kind of 
head. Why is there the constant uh, strife? Yeah, so Ethiopia could and should have been a flagship for uh, Pan-Africanism. And it's one of the first countries uh, to actually start the AU, African Union, and and, and the League of Nations, a member of the League of Nations, and uh, has been involved in diplomacies, high diplomacy throughout the you know 19th, 20th, uh, mostly the 20th century and the 21st century. So this country has the potential to actually being the only country that has not been colonized, fully colonized by European nation and has its own alphabets, has its own, a lot of things that we could actually bring to uh, to the African nations to actually have the solidarity and liquidate this boundaries, colonial boundaries and have free trade and that, you know, movement of people uh, and not be dependent on, on, on the Western countries and on, on the global West as much as they do, right? So to do that, you know, in some of my, my, my uh, platform, I actually talk about, you know, I am a Pan-Africanist. I am a, an Ethiopian and I'm also an Oromo. Those two things do not have to contradict each other. We can actually work our way from small to big in them together. Um, and that has not been a, a, a shortcut for political interests. Uh, people who want to attain power and actually build some kind of fighting power uh, or get you know some control over politics see that the shortcut is to work with people's resentments and and hate and and the lower person in them mm -hmm. and tell them that there is an uh, us versus them and yes. so and so hates you and so and so is out to get you and look at what he did to you so let's go get him right that's very easily it just taps into that uh, instinct that primal uh, instinct uh, of like you know this is my boundary we're going to headbutt until one of us falls down and you know me with my bloody nose is king of this small tiny area of grass it's just like uh, it's it's very primitive but it's it taps into the dna of being like you know primal so Getting out of that requires, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of unity, and it requires a lot of patience. And that's what I always try to remind. And then, you know, the no war number one, no war movement, you know, has not been. You know, you might see a lot of people loving it and a lot of you know acceptance, but people who actually think they have some stake in the political uh, movement might be cautious of uh, something populist leading towards unity and coming together and solving uh, issues with conversation. I have noticed that uh, they are a little apprehensive of throwing punches right away, but I'm seeing some being thrown now. And you know, I just smile because I'm not collecting money or uh, you know organizing an army or running for office. So. It pretty much you're you know punching at um, you know the air you're not gonna get anything here right so but it's not just air when it comes to the substance of facts that I hold dear we have issues that cannot can can be solved we have historical grievances that we have built a nation upon 
they have not been dealt by the people. They have always been dealt by political interests that just want to lull you to back to sleep, just tell you we're all equal, we love each other. Here is your <clears throat> you know, daily dose of forget about it and let's go on, right? Just walk it off. Nothing, it's just some colonization and trying to eradicate each other and a few million people dead, just walk it off. And that attitude has paid us negative dividend back to back to back. And uh, the animosity and hatred that is portrayed on the political level is not present on the people's level. The people, for the most part, now I grew in, in that nation and some of my friends, I didn't even know what ethnicity they were for a long time until I investigated. Like, you know, I don't see it. But I also would know who they were immediately if I told them, you know, my people don't see this country the way most people do because we feel like uh, our ancestors were you know, forced to be part of this country and learn this language and follow a religion and be, you know, follow this culture. And meanwhile, their culture was demeaned and their language were a laughing matter and no political economy. Uh, so if I say that, immediately they would say, oh my goodness, you're a racist or you're a hater, you're a, you know, you're a separatist, separ you know, uh, you're, you're a secessionist or something of that sort, meaning I have less Ethiopian uh, personality. I'm, I'm less of an Ethiopian because I brought up grievances, right? So mm -hmm. bygones be bygones, let the, you know, just water under the bridge and let's walk it off. And that doesn't work because that is capital for people who want to use it against each other. We have to make it diminish to a place where it is just history, where it is just facts that happened in the past, something that we have understood worked our way out of because some of those hegemonious uh, relationships we have are still displaying themselves in real life in our constitution it clearly states article uh, 106 the last article of the constitution says if there is any ambiguity uh, in this constitution the amharic version shall overrule clearly so the Oromo P being the most populous and the mm -hmm. only uh, nation in there where you know the capital is at the heart of this nation, the most populous, the most arable land. And you you read that constitution immediately you say, Well, this constitution is telling me my language is less done. You know, right. I cannot resolve something. You know, the national uh, the, the federal language is just one language, which is the Amharic. And then there are over 80 languages in the country. So those things still can can build resentment. There are land delineation issues. Nobody knows whose territory ends where. You go to Europe and America, you can easily say, you know, you can jump to one country and jump to another, and it's a laughing matter. Nobody is going to shed blood over it because they have established, instituted that demarcation of where one ends and the other begins. Mm -hmm. which helped them to move beyond that and build upon some kind of camaraderie and companionship. It becomes insignificant once you have an, a commonly understood fact set on the ground. We don't have common historicity, common history, common understanding of facts, common uh, understanding of where the delineation of land is. Those things have to come to the front and the people have to sit down and talk 
and you know media you, and situation yeah. how do you do that though so i mean i and we're going to take a short one more last short break and then we're going to get into your um hashtag number one no war and and, and flesh that a little bit but one one of the things that um is interesting is when you talk about something that is more populist in its nature, like what you're talking about, it has to come from the people and you have to get the people to sit down and do this. How does, how do you practically do that? You know, where you have um, an area in Africa with so many different regions, so many different ethnicities, so many different languages, how do you convene practically that space, that public sphere for those discussions to happen for that to, to, to work itself out. So I'm going to leave that question hanging, let you think on that for a second. We'll take one last break. We'll come back. You can take a stab at that. And then let's talk about uh, what you're trying to do with uh, hashtag number one, no war and your other efforts. Um, My man is blowing up on TikTok, hundred and some thousand followers. It's, it's, it's crazy. So we'll be right back. How do we do that practically? How do we yeah, and, get and these people in the same a, space? Your, your question is a good segue into what I have as uh, that hashtag and the campaign that we, and, and I like to say we because I can easily say I, but there's a lot of people who already bought into this. And you know, and I, and I always tell them, this is not mine, this is ours. Take it and run with it. Because we need as many of us as possible uh, to do to carry this across the line and uh, there needs to be an institution you cannot just gather the people under a tree and talk about this there needs to be an an institution and we do have uh, actually a law uh, that has been a legislation i think legislation number 1265 of the ethiopian parliament that has been passed two years ago to establish a commission of um, dialogue and uh, uh, reconciliation, right? So this Dialogue Reconciliation uh, Commission uh, has been established and has been working on building infrastructure for how to extract questions from all uh, parts of the community, society, uh, people you know, with disabilities, women, children, uh, people who are uh, doing time or serving uh, in the military or prison or uh, elderly people, uh, you know, the bureaucrats, all parts of community. I think they laid down somewhere around 10 um, parts of society. And from the lowest level of the communities, which is the Warada is, and they're saying they're getting two people per Warada. I think there are over a thousand, if not thousands of Waradas in Ethiopia. So these are going to be thousands of people coming, representing those areas, those small areas, and getting the questions from those communities and parts of society. And it's going to be a huge amount of questions and issues that are going to be compiled and sorted through and brought to a higher level, where regional level, and then and on the national level, the most important and ambiguous questions for discussion will be introduced and on them based on them uh, you know the legislation puts uh, forward a way to establish some of them into amendments for the constitution some of them for referendums if necessary 
whatever resolution needs to come after, this commission will have uh, discussions established, questions sorted and, and known, uh, and have the discussions and then recommend and it will expire and there shall be another commission which will execute upon those, right? So now the problem is I'm one of the people who preaches about this commission because yet I have not seen it being uh, hijacked by the, by the executive body or being subservient to any political interest. And I wanted to stay that way. And the only way to keep it stay, keep it that way is for the people to feel a sense of ownership uh, and belonging and actually audit this and follow it. Uh, but people don't care. People want to hear more about the conflicts here and there. There is a conflict in Oromia between the Ola, Ola Romo Liberation Army and the government. There is the Amhara, uh, you know, uprising that that are you know armed groups that are fighting the government. People want to hear more. Yep, the Fano. They want to hear more and more about that. And nobody wants to hear about a commission that's trying to resolve our uh, centuries-old uh, resentments and situation, like something that would establish a nation-building process that will help us for the foreseeable future and as a result could lead uh, to us being uh, you know the you know the the solution part of the solution to the uh, pan africanism issue that our forefathers uh, left us so uh, I, and that's what I'm propagating as much as I can and I'm like just let's focus on this institution before we throw it away and let's not focus who established it which era it was People are like, oh, this government established it. It belongs to that government. I'm not going to touch it with a, you know, with a ten, uh, ten foot pole. I'm going to just go ahead and make sure I throw that guy away uh, because of he did this or he is from here that right. So uh, we cannot focus on things that are solution because we are currently dealing with conflict, armed conflict. That's why I'm saying hashtag number one: no war. Right. Let's get to that place where there is no war. That way we can go back to negotiations, compromises, and actually working on things that would resolve the situ the situation and not put band-aids on it. So what do you say to um critics of your thinking who would say, you know, hashtag number one no war is it sounds great, but how do you actively get, you know, the leaders of these regional militias or the leader of the government, you know, uh, Ahmad himself, how do you get them to, to put down the, the most direct, uh, powerful means to maintain their own interests and their own, their, their own political and, you know, just personal power uh, goals? Are you sure you don't, uh, you don't uh, speak Amharic or Afan Romo because you sound like uh, you've been listening to the conversations we've been having, and you know, no. <laughs> uh, because this is this is one of the questions that are uh, uh, that have been asked, and one of the very kind ones. What I try to do is I I try to start from creating awareness and answering the questions from the get go, instead of questions becoming uh, uh, prejudice and ways to divide, you know, the the whole thing. So. And, and I have been starting this stage and I try to invite people want to come up and give compliments. I cut their time as short as like one to two minutes. Uh, I try to get the people who actually think this is poison. 
uh, or people who what a novel concept somebody who has an idea that is actually encouraging the people who disagree with him to get time at the mic that is a very novel idea you have no space in American political discourse with that kind of thinking. <laughs> I mean, I don't have the the the, the luxury of you know, uh, you know, acting. A, uh, this is even with its difficulties. The American political system has uh, some infrastructure that has dried in. Right, the concrete has dried in democracy for the most part. I you know, it's very very recently I stopped using my fingers when I say democracy. It's like you have to. It's like a must. It comes with it. <laughs> because demos kratos is unattainable in the world we live in. Even for like countries like the Scandinavian countries in Norway, still there is, if you really dig deep, it's not really demos kratos, meaning it's not power to the people. It's power from the people, but somewhere, you know, you have to have a narrower, uh, you know, bottleneck to actually govern it to some degree. So I'm not going to dig deeper into that, but in America, you know, you have the luxury of like, yeah, let's try to, you know, punch a hole into this wall because, you know, you have, you know, it's concrete and there's a brick wall behind it that has been established. Uh, At the end of the day, if something comes, you know, we're talking about Iran, Americans don't worry about any of the, you know, shenanigans that goes in in parliament or in the house representatives or the, the you know the president who's a president or who's not it doesn't matter you know before if, if something from outside comes it just immediately that that flag comes into the image and everybody's ready to just go nation building is completed here right mm-hmm. and we're we're dealing with a country that we're we're trying to establish and and if you see the the the, the, the american uh, uh, like fathers who started, uh, like Washington himself, he had to enact things on himself when it comes to terms, mm-hmm. limits, and things of that sort. These people had to act like uh, like saints, not because they were saints indeed, but because they know unless they lay a ground of precedence that shall be followed, then it's going to be just all for nothing, right? So you have to enact things on yourself against your ego and interest. I would like to hear some of those compliments, but uh, I want to hear some of the things that we need for nation building. Our nation needs to be built or else we're going to be in big trouble for a very long time. Like you said, a very elongated civil war uh, where, where, you know, people like me don't die. I can sit here and send some, you know, mesmerizing political, you know, English is my third language. You probably would not believe me that I can do some real political magic. Uh, but I speak those two languages, Amharic and Afaro and I can really make sense to people. And if I say some things uh, that raises people against the other, I can do that. And that probably will get me an office or some kind of, you know, ambassadorial, whatever it gets me uh, with a rebel force, with some so-and-so. I can work towards that very uh, ugly uh, truth. is It's very easily attainable. Well, the the fact of the matter is that's not going to lead me anywhere. Somebody is going to come and crucify me in like 10 years, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and even from the personal, aside from the personal interest, what am I leaving for my children, for my grandchildren, for the future, for that country? Who am I, right? Mm-hmm. So if we are to go anywhere, we have to build a nation. And the only way to build a nation is to 
actually have a consensus on basic facts of what is this country? How is it governed? Where are the boundaries? You know, what are the things that we agree on? Where are the resentments? Where are the, the you know, the issues that divide us? How do we go forward? Who wants to stay and who wants to leave? We mm-hmm. don't even know that, right? So yeah. we have to establish that and we cannot do that while we're shooting each other. To come back to your question, <clears throat> people ask, you know, that some people would think this is poison and others, the you know, the best would say, would ask your question, the worst would say this is just bad um, and you're, I'm a messenger of, of either the government or some political entity uh, that's, uh, that's trying to distract them. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, some actually say, okay, how do we make sure that this is not just hot air? How do you bring this on the ground? How do you make Abi listen, the military listen, and people who are in power listen? Um, and I try to take them back just to 2018. 2018, we didn't have any armed struggle. No, no, not even one bullet was shot at the EPRD, which has built the security apparatus like no other in Africa. They were organized. If you said anything in your dreams, they will know, right? That's how good the EPRDF was. But it was, the PPLF was, you know, thrown from the power by the people's struggle because the Amhara and the Oromo and the people in general were really standing together and they were doing things. Joel Mohammed, a friend who was here in Minnesota, used to send this Facebook and messages and people would actually follow that, those lines. They used to be like, okay, close your doors, don't go to shop, don't go to market, do this, and people would do. People would just close their doors and not interact with the government. Uh, people would close the roads and there will not be transportation. People would just stand like in hundreds of thousands on the street and they got the attention, right? So mm-hmm. the the thing is, that's why I'm creating awareness. Like if you have any questions, ask them now. And if I'm going to stop, we're going to stop together. But if we're going to go to get forward, we're going to go forward together too. And I'm not asking for anybody to close doors or, uh, you know, do these demonstrations, God forbid, we might have to go that far. But my main idea is if we are standing on this no war stand, we already have allies in doing that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, right now, Mike Hammer, special envoy, uh, envoy is, is uh, convoy to the, to the uh, East Africa is there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they already had two uh, conversations negotiations that were not fruitful in Tanzania with the OLA. <clears throat> this didn't come you know, to fruition. And that's when I started actually the you know, number one no war hashtag too, which, is, which I was saying is, let, let's make, why I put that number one in there is, these people have priorities. They have you know, sticking points where they're saying, you know, unless I get this one, I'm not gonna create peace. I'm gonna go back to war. And both the government and the warring parties have this number one issue that they don't let go. And the people have to make sure that all of them know the number one issue that they should consider is that they have to cease fire. They have to stop war. We are paying dearly. And if they are fighting for us, everybody claims our names. If they are ruling on our constitution, which we signed with them, if they are our government, if they are our rebels, they're going to make our issue number one. 
which is no war. If we resoundingly voice this as people, then we can get rid of that first blockage of having an ongoing conflict, armed conflict, blocking us from moving forward towards negotiation, compromise, then uh, having a com following that commission to dialogue and resolution of our historical facts uh, and issues. Yeah, it seems to me in a nation that has been so long uh, plagued by violence, that the I think that's one of the reasons why the number one no war um, campaign has such traction is that it's you know if if there's anything that the people can unify on it's that we've been fighting and killing each other for too long right because it seems to me in from just my brief reading over it that there's really no section of that country that isn't in some way shape or form impacted by this constant violence you know your 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 region might quiet down for a little while but then it always seems to circle back and and if you if you can achieve that primary goal of you know however we sort this out we sort this out without resorting to to violence i, I think that's that's remarkable and and what a message beyond the borders of ethiopia for what's happening in gaza right now for what's happening in other parts of the just constant world where there is this this constant fighting right eastern europe as well um what i i wanted to circle back to something that you had mentioned earlier about how ethiopia can be you know at the forefront of a pan-african movement i think what's really interesting to me is there's a paradox in this in that if ethiopia which is divided by so many different ethnicities and languages and and uh ideologies and movements, if that little micro, microcosm of Africa can figure it out and can demonstrate a path to unity, right? What a, what a remarkable kind of um, workshop for the rest of the continent, right? To see, well, if they can yeah. figure this out, right? Then there's a model that we can use to build on for a larger Pan-African unity. Uh, I think that's really to me, that's really that is, remarkable, and that's the strength behind what yeah, I see. That is that is so out. true, and also we have to remember, like the South Americans, uh, in their struggle against colonialism, and all uh, almost all African nations uh, struggling against colonialism, tapped into what it, what was Ethiopia, and how it managed to stay away from being colonized. Mm -hmm. You know, through the War of Adwa. And a lot of things, and we had one of the first navies that actually supported this uh, countries that started fighting colonization, uh, and and we, you know, our air force used to be deployed uh, uh, throughout Africa. Mandela was trained in, in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. uh, Mandela himself came and stayed there, and uh, one of the you know the first uh, uh, Oromo uh, liberation. Uh, not in the front format, but one of the you know uh, the front runners of the Oromo people's cause, uh, General uh, the General was uh, Tadesa Peru was his trainer, right? So uh, Mandela spent time there and trained and a lot of people, a lot of revolutionaries, a lot of people who fought uh, this uh, this colonization of Africans came there and tapped into it all the way to South American people. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a lighthouse of sorts that there is 
uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel uh, and it's not a train coming your way. Uh, you know, so there is there is a way to actually resist against uh, European powers and, you know, they too bleed kind of attitude, right? If we really strike and if we really push, we can get our liberation and our, our freedom. That kind of uh, voice of resistance that was Ethiopia, that history it has with religions and multi, like you mentioned, multi-ethnic backgrounds, uh, and the fact that we are, uh, you know, uh, you know, Haile Selassie. You can, uh, if you listen to his speech, one of his famous speeches, which normally used by uh, Rastafari and Reggae uh, stars. Uh, by the way, his name is Rastafari. That's why he's called Rastafari. Uh, he actually, in the League of Nations, spoke too. And, and he was a Pan-Africanist, right? So we have this heritage that could make us a beacon of hope for Pan-Africanism. Meanwhile, we are smeared in this you know, uh, ethnic gap and conflict uh, that is ruining the entire hope and and you know population and everything we have so uh, hopefully this no war thing and i say like for gaza or anywhere in the world and uh, number one requirement of the people the number one cause of the people uh, some say it's the boundaries some say it's free some say this and that political nothing political supersedes peace for the people no war is always number one for the people and it can be borrowed and i encourage anyone who listens to this to actually use it as this is the people's voice, I believe. Anywhere, all creeds and color can use mm -hmm. it. The people's interest is for peace. Uh, killing another person will not solve your problem. And that's what we're trying to preach uh, in Ethiopia. Ayana, I have kept you for a long time, and I really appreciate uh, this discussion. This insight's been absolutely uh, fascinating, educational, uh, and inspiring, uh, as usual. I've I've got the pleasure of of talking to you on the regular and know how inspiring you can yeah. be. So I uh, made it much. easy call to bring you on. Ayana Faisa, I really appreciate you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, any last words before we say goodbye? It's well, as usual, it was delightful. You know, yeah, yeah, talking to you is like something you don't know where the time goes. <laughs> and, you know, I look forward, I listen to your podcast and I look forward to uh, it at any time if, needed hopefully with better news uh, than where we are today uh, to come and and uh, join you in the future and thank you for having me so much thanks a, a lot ayana all right everybody take care we'll see you uh, next week with a uh, exciting new podcast on purity culture uh white christian purity culture shifting gears tremendously yes. but, uh, <laughs> it'll be a fantastic uh, episode so again thanks everybody take care Sleep.